Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an excellent interview today with Brian Bishop. He's a Bitcoin Core contributor uh, under Kanzer is the username. Uh, also worked at LedgerX, the uh, swap execution facility, derivatives clearing organization, designated contract market, which, by the way, they opened Omni, so they're taking retail clients now instead of just ECPs. And for the last three months, you've had a a benefactor that has paid you to sit around and think about cold storage. So that sounds very exciting. So that's going to be the topic of our discussion. Uh, from all of your sitting around and thinking, uh, what what do we have to learn? About cold storage, well, uh, there's actually a lot of interesting ways that we can store coins that people haven't actually been doing yet. And I think that part of the reason for this is that a lot of developers like to focus on like consensus changes and problems around private key management are maybe a little bit less sexy. Um, a lot of the procedures you need to do to be really secure could be characterized as boring. So perhaps that's why it hasn't had as much attention. Yeah. So what is a, an example of things that aren't widely used, but we could use to help increase our, our cold storage abilities? Well, I mean, a very simple example um, is Shamir Secret Sharing. I guess simple is all relative. Uh, Shamir Secret Sharing isn't that widely used, but it's an excellent method for password recovery for a single user. And one of the things I like about it that, that isn't often proposed is that what you could do is um, you could have your shares stored in multiple locations. And then when you want to um, use your secret or, or rotate it, what you do is you... Um, at each location, you have a new share that you put there when you take out the the old share. And so once the full secret is assembled, you send it off to this new secret that is assembled by these new shares so that um, uh, you only reassemble the Shamir secret only once. And this is an important privacy and security secrecy technique. Yeah, so let, let's make this a little more concrete. In Armory, we actually implemented uh, Shamir secret sharing with fragmented backups five plus years ago. And so how it works is we, we create the seed, and then Shamir Secret Sharing, we create, say, three of five shares, and you need three out of the five in order to reconstitute the seed. Uh, so how, like, out of those five things, like, what would your plan look like? Like, what are we, what are we talking about here? Well, you know, what's interesting, actually, is that HTC has their uh, blockchain phone, I suppose. It's focused on cryptocurrency, and they've implemented Shamir Secret Sharing. Um, they call it social key recovery. So um, your various friends have one of the shares, and it goes through their software uh, to, um, to reassemble when you call it in, basically. Um, but this is interesting, though, because this is, a, this is an alternative to multisig, and many people would argue that multisig is actually better, a better way to go. Because with multisig, you bring transactions to each key, um, you sign them, and you never have to bring the keys together. Yep. 
Well, so now, now these are separate though, right? Because you can actually do multi-sig and Shamir secret sharing at the same time. Yeah, that's true. So each key could be a different Shamir secret and they have different shares that are unrelated to the other keys in the multi-sig setup. Yeah, that would be one way. Like I'm thinking in Armory, uh, we create a lockbox and by creating the lockbox, we use the pub key. Uh, and the pub keys can come from different wallets, which have the seeds, and then those seeds are are implemented via the fragmented backups. Mm. So we have fragmented backups with shares in order to get the seed of one of the keys. Each of the keys that makes up the lockbox would have its own seed, which is also fragmented backup. And so now we've got both multi-sig and Shamir secret sharing being implemented. So one of the interesting things here that I think a lot of people miss with Shamir is that you can actually do large groups. So with Bitcoin multi-sig, you're limited. I mean, before SegWit, you were limited to 15 keys, and now it's a bit more, uh, but still limited. With, with Shamir, you could do you know 30 of 50 if you wanted. Right, yeah. I think in in Armory, we, we do 12 of 12, and then we do, I think it's uh, 7 or 9 on the fragmented backups. Uh, haven't messed around with that lately, uh, to be honest. So... But yeah, I mean, having these much larger uh, sizes can be very useful for exchanges where we've got segregation of duties. And and also, as you increase the size of the Shamir share group requirements, you're not increasing the Bitcoin fees. So Yes, that's one of the things I like about using the fragmented backups is it appears as just a single SIG from the outside. Uh, but you can have yet, you know, totally kind of in the offline uh, way that you're implementing the plan, you can have a very, you can have a much more kind of complex uh, setup. So, a, a company down in Austin, Texas, called Unchained Capital, recently released an open source library for mainly for developers. It's a product called Hermit, and um, it's an air gapped QR code only um, Bitcoin wallet based off of Shamir uh, secret sharing. And what I really like about it, besides the QR code air gap, meaning the only way you communicate with it is QR codes through the camera and yeah, which, screen. Which which is totally awesome because with, with Armory, the USB was actually one of the, the biggest attack surfaces. Yeah. And so we looked into QR codes, but we couldn't get the data uh, in the QR codes. It, it was just too much. And so we even looked at, in fact, I think somebody built where we could transfer via three and a half millimeter audio cable. Mm. which has a much smaller attack surface. It's possible that cameras might have improved. Maybe that's... Yeah, maybe better there's better resolution yeah. or like... Um, so but what I really like about Hermit is this idea that when you type in the Shamir secret shares, it has a timeout and it deletes it after a few seconds. Um, so that's like a really important thing, that if you are going to type in your secrets into a machine, you should make sure it gets deleted pretty promptly. Yeah, which like Armory also does that. You know, we, we delete and then rewrite over the RAM... Uh, many times so that like as, as you should so so that it's nearly it, it becomes very very difficult to like use liquid nitrogen to extract those private keys um so oh go ahead well you know that's that's actually one of the interesting reasons for the um you know there's this um you know during my cold storage project one of the interesting questions that arose was do you use secure hardware secure enclaves 
or commodity laptops oh, or commodity well, hardware. That's kind of the third rail, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I, I suppose we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, let's start with this concept of vaults that you came up in your thinking, uh, because you know this is going to feed into another discussion about keeping the hot wallet secure, sure. and then of course that's going to feed into the larger discussion that becomes very applicable to even individuals of the secure enclave versus general purpose computer. So, so what is this idea with vaults? So I'm actually not the originator of the idea of vaults. Um, there were a number of other people that had proposed these ideas, uh, even as far back as 2016, but unfortunately they required a hard fork or at least a soft fork. And their idea was a vault was defined as a mechanism where you put Bitcoin into the vault. And then the only way that anyone could withdraw Bitcoin from the vault was if they withdraw it in a way where you had a clawback period. Now, unfortunately, to do that in Bitcoin on chain um, in 2016, you would have had to um, have, a, have a hard fork or some kind of fork to implement a covenant opcode, which does not exist. So when I looked at this, um, I was thinking, well, what can I do that would be close enough? And I published a proposal recently and got picked up in the media for a technique where it was actually a little bit broken, but the secure version is um, where you can limit your total losses from a theft to 1% or even less of your total holdings. And it scales based off of how many, uh, how much fees you want to pay in, 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 on the Bitcoin transactions. Okay, so how, how would that work? Uh, we, you know, because let's say we want to limit it to 1%. Uh, what what's the what's it actually look like? So it's actually quite simple. Um, it involves pre-signed transactions and deleting certain keys, and it's all in the proposal. But what it comes down to is that you're setting up a transaction that has one input with all your coins or multiple inputs. I don't I don't really care. But then there's um, let's say you're limiting it to one percent, so there will be one hundred outputs, each with one percent of your coins, and then each of these outputs has a certain script. The script is um, all of them look identical. It's um, uh, instant recovery flow where you can send it back into a vault or into a deeper cold storage system. Or after a relative time lock delay, you're able to use some hotkey, which might be stolen by the, by the attacker. And then for each of these 100 outputs, each of these relative time lock delays are increasing by one day each or some other time period. So what this allows you to do is that if you observe that an attacker steals 1% of your funds, you know not to let the other 99% continue to go to that hotkey. And you can do that, you can have this at each point. So if at any point 1% is stolen, the remaining coins that have not been stolen, you can send to the recovery. Maybe it's to some deep cold storage vault where you have like five vaults all around the world and you have to go travel or something. That's probably better than losing all of your money. So... I think this is pretty interesting. Yeah, so we're we're talking about a script here where it would be uh, send X uh, Bitcoin to address A or the relative time lock. Yes, that's right. That, yeah. That's what the script is right. going to look like. Yeah. Um, and how how do we implement that with these hot wallets in order to increase the security of a hot wallet? So this was another idea I came up with. Um, Although it's it's somewhat derivative, um, and I'll explain explain how in a moment. Um, basically, the idea is that I was looking at exchanges and how they get hacked, and I was philosophizing about this, and I, I was thinking, you know, I mean, some exchanges are just very poorly built, but I mean, realistically, in the in the big ones, what happens when coins get stolen isn't that an attacker gets into the server and there's a private key just sitting there. What happens is the server 
the web server communicates with a signing server, and the signing server maybe checks withdrawal requests, and the attacker makes a withdrawal request, and the server happily signs because there's a withdrawal request, and then the attacker gets to steal all the coins. Well, I was thinking, well, one way that we could possibly make hot wallets more secure is by that very same script structure, which is that the signing server will only sign transactions that meet the following requirement. You don't have to check withdrawal requests. All you have to check is the output script on that transaction and if it matches a certain template. And that template is, does the exchange have a, a clawback period where they can say, hey, this is wrong? And if it does, you can sign it happily. That's fine to sign. Because as long as the exchange is monitoring the blockchain, which they should all be doing, then they have this opportunity to recover stolen funds before they're really stolen. Yeah, before there's kind of, you could say, final settlement uh, with the transactions. Okay, so let's let's get to the really kind of the contentious part of the interview. Secure enclaves versus general purpose uh, computing. so, you know, I started Proof of Keys. We got the website proofofkeys.com. That generated a lot of uh, discussion on securing people, securing your private keys, getting it off of exchanges, getting it off of third parties. A good learning experience for everybody. Uh, the thing I think we can learn from your three months of cold storage pondering is that we can always kind of learn more about how to uh, competently handle our our keys to the Bitcoin. I don't like secure enclaves uh, for the most part with individuals. I think there are use cases with, with institutions, HSMs, things like that. But for the individual, I just really don't like the idea of secure enclaves. Like, and I think we should be using general purpose computing if we want to be most secure. Change my mind. Okay, that's interesting because I'm not sure I really believe in secure enclaves either. But <laughs> well, take the other but, side of the argument. <laughs> oh, certainly no. In the interest of steel manning secure enclaves, um, the the particular scenario that I, I really like secure enclaves for is the following: is that it's a machine that is um, tamper evident, meaning that if someone tampers with it, you know. It's also tamper resistant, meaning that if someone tampers with it, it deletes the secret. And that's really interesting to me because. The problem in Bitcoin is how do you know if someone has stolen your key? The only way to know that someone has stolen your key is if you observe them stealing your money, which by then it's already too late. So, okay, you have these online servers that'll sign anything maybe, but if an attacker physically goes to those servers and steals your, maybe it's a laptop in a data center just wired in in a closet somewhere. If they steal the laptop, you know, then they'll be able to sign anything and, and bypass those signing restrictions. But if it's a secure enclave where it has this tamper-resistant property where if they try to tamper with it, it deletes the secret and it's just gone, then that would possibly mitigate that sort of attacker. Now, the problem, though, is that, as you've mentioned before, I mean, there are known attacks against computers where, like, if you have something in, in RAM, dunk it in liquid nitrogen and you might get lucky and be able to recover the data. Um, there's all sorts of chip decapping techniques using focused ion beams. I actually just bought one of those machines for a friend. He finally got it working. Uh, it's actually really <laughs> it sounds cool. Sounds like something from Star Trek. Um, it's <laughs> awesome. A focused awesome. ion beam. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is actually exactly that awesome. Uh, the idea is that you can use a five nanometer wide beam of ions to slowly remove atoms from the top of a microchip oh, to wow. decap it and then physically examine the circuits. 
to be able to see either the data that is there or the logic that the circuit is implementing. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And attackers have this technology as well. So you have to be able to resist this, I think. Um, if you had a mechanism where if someone is using a focused ion beam to decap this chip or whatever, it deletes the secret, then I think that would be very valuable. Okay, so let's let's get a little more practical than our uh, than our than our ion beam. <laughs> How about like a, les- a treasure, a trezor, or a ledger? Uh, you know, we're we're talking about just an incredible amount of trust that we're placing in these types of secure enclaves. Yeah, I mean, there there's a few things that you have to really think about when you're looking at hardware wallets like that, especially consumer hardware wallets. Which, I mean, they're better than nothing, but. Um, Maybe our standards should be a little higher than nothing. Um, like in particular, what about supply chain issues? What about? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you, you saw that Bloomberg article. You have a little piece of uh, silicon that's like way smaller than a grain of rice, and it could totally compromise your entire key, uh, your entire device, and all your keys. So, and that's assuming it's put on there maliciously. What if Trezor or Ledger are compromising? Uh, your devices or compromising the way that you sign uh, your keys or or generate your keys on your devices oh i mean i don't actually have an answer to you i mean other than (laughs) yeah that's a risk you're taking and you're putting trust somewhere you might not necessarily should be putting trust i mean you know one of the interesting things i mean really go and look at the track record for these products um i i would say for a hardware wallet what I'm most interested in at the moment is multi-sig support. If you have Stellar multi-sig support on a hardware wallet, then I'm much more interested in it. Um, there was a wonderful presentation. Yeah, because then you can at least be using multiple different manufacturers. That's right. Because Heterogeneous mean, hardware is very important. Yeah. I mean, from different suppliers. Yeah, using a bad analogy, but part of the problem is the key space, right? Like if we're using uh, secure enclaves, it really reduces the 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 variability in the hardware that an attacker has to be competent with compromising. Well, that's true as well. And in particular, how many different manufacturers of these secure enclaves are there really? And the the answer is quite limited, actually. Um, You know, it'd be great if we had like an open source version of one where we had verifiable designs and anyone could make it or something, but that's not where we're at. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of, I do there, you know, to steel man, the, the argument to use secure enclaves, uh, Let's let's talk about like bearer Bitcoin. So my favorite product for this would be the Open Dime, uh, and the Open Dime uh, the and the Cold Card. Uh, these products, you know, talking about whether the key's been compromised or not, well, that's where you have to physically break the Open Dime. It's tamper resistant because it's under all of the all of the different like goo <laughs> that, that gets hardened. What what do you think about that product? So. There's an interesting version of this, and it's actually very related to tamper-resistant hardware. And the way that those systems usually work is that you have a mesh of wires, basically, and they do like capacitive sensing, but also electrical sensing of like open and closed circuits to generate random data. And that random data is your secret. Yeah, because so I mean, if, if Trezor or Ledger like screws up your random number generator or potentially sure. compromises it, you don't even necessarily know that you're, you've been a, sure. attacked because they're attacking you through software, not hardware, so, and your keys are still compromised. And then as soon as Bitcoins get in there, they can sweep them. So, so with this mesh, if you drill into it, you change it. So the secret is no longer there. That's the idea. That's what I think can be. Yeah, uh, and that's what Goldcard does. I mean, what OpenDime does. 
So, and, and I've interviewed Rodolfo about the open dime, uh, specifically because, you know, there is this use case for bearer Bitcoin. If you, if, if you can trust the device that the private key is still, uh, uncompromised problem is, is like, how do you back it up? Right. <laughs> how do you, how do you back it up? Um, you definitely need backups. That's true. Cause, cause these devices do fail. You know, well, or, you know, you could do destroyed. you could do multi-sig bearer Bitcoin, maybe. Maybe that's wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll give that idea to to Rodolfo. That would sure be something else. You know, have like a have like three of five or or three of seven uh, open dimes, and that way you you effectively have backed up bearer Bitcoin. It, it's like a limited mint coin where this is this is five in the collection, right? And you have to have all five to. With these powers combined, <laughs> that's no. before my time. <laughs> oh, before you're in, not a Voltron fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm younger than that. <laughs> well, isn't that good? Um, yeah. So so we're we're talking about secure enclaves versus the general purpose computing. So so let's go to the general purpose computing side. Um, so one of the huge advantages there is that commodity hardware is cheap. There's all sorts of manufacturers. You can use really old machines to sign Bitcoin transactions. You can use really new machines if you want to. Yeah, that's part of the reason nuclear launch codes are still on 8-inch disks, right? <laughs> the attack surface is just a whole lot smaller. So what about, like, uh, what, what hardware do we like? I like the Purism laptop. Um, I'm, not, I'm actually not really ready to talk about hardware that I would endorse. Um, um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Um, really, like what I um what I would look for is multi sig support. Um, yeah, but interesting this is note, general purpose. Interesting note. Um, oh, general purpose hardware. Yeah, that you're general in. purpose computer. Oh, the purism computers. stuff would be nice. Yeah. Purism would be yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, that'd be nice to look into. Um, in general, I would like to focus on open source hardware. Um, built-in multi-sig support would be nice in terms of the hardware wallets. Full disk encryption? Full disk encryption would be nice. For yeah. sure. <laughs> like, um, don't open your laptop in a library. <laughs> tamper resistance, tamper evidence, that'd be nice. Um, um, speaking of, for hardware wallets, um, Michael Flaxman gave a really good interview to, to uh, Stepan recently, and uh, I, I highly recommend that. He went through a whole bunch of hardware wallets and like personally evaluated a bunch of them and came up with some good recommendations. So that's a good resource. So what are what are some other really good resources out there for cold storage? Uh, I like Glacier Protocol. Just help people kind of get initiated. You know, Glacier Protocol is interesting, but my observation when reviewing it has always been that there seems to be a lot of steps in there that could have been automated with more software. Um, I think that would be an interesting direction in the future. Well, someone's um, got to write the software, and who's going to do it? Sure. It costs money. Another interesting player that's shown up, though, is uh, Square Crypto, and in particular their Sub-Zero project. Oh, I'm which, not familiar at all with well, that. Well, they, they have recently made an open source contribution to the community. It's their secure cold storage system. Um, it, um, I kind of see it as, a, as a, another member of the same category that Glacier Protocol lives in. So, Oh, okay. That, that could actually be very helpful. So you're saying that Jack's becoming a good... Bitcoin citizen contributing I mean, to the open source and you know honestly they hired Steve they hired Blue Matt that's great I think they're off to a great start if they can replicate Chaincode Labs to any degree that would be a massive success yeah and Matt's just so good at training new people um, I mean he just does such a great job at that and I, I loved rubbing shoulders with him at the New York Bit Devs whenever I'm there so uh, yeah that's great so you know we've kind of come to the 
hit on all the major topics we wanted to talk about. Is there anything we we failed to cover that you feel is important for everyone to kind of at least rise to their attention? Well, um, for exchanges, I think that uh, we should very strongly consider putting together an initiative to convince them to all do a, a single standard for signed withdrawal requests. Yeah, so I've actually, I raised this issue to Jesse over at Kraken like five years ago before you, well, right around when I put in the initial investment. Uh, it's very simple. When you create your account, you give them a public key. And whenever you want to make a withdrawal or any account change for that matter, uh, you have to sign the request with that pri- with the private key of that public key. So they now have cryptographic proof that you may you wanted to make this change. Like why why haven't any exchanges done this? I mean, how easy would that be to implement on the software side? Well, so there are some easy things that you could do to get that done. I, I wouldn't worry about Kraken doing it correctly, but for smaller exchanges, that's why we need the standard. Because what I would worry is that they keep the public key for the user in a database connected to the web server. The attacker logs in and changes the public key to their own public key and says, yes, here's a signed withdrawal request matching the key. Well, and that, that's so, why we use proof of existence to anchor into the blockchain, like what the public key is that's associated with our account, right? Right, right. <laughs> there, there's other techniques as well, such as have multiple backups, check the backups, make sure they're disconnected. You know, it's actually similar to um, in Battlestar Galactica, um, uh, the admiral was like always like no computers, no networked computers. Actually, that was his rule uh, because network computers were were apparently evil, and that's what actually saved his skin in the end. But, anyway. <laughs> well, they, you know, sometimes they need to be air gapped, and sometimes they don't. It depends on the use case, and you need to be wisely using the tools that you've got. Uh, another thing that comes to mind: what about the the PBST that got merged? What are kind of your thoughts on that? Oh, I think it's great to have a standard for partially signed Bitcoin transactions, BIP-174. Um, I think uh, I'll, basically all of the wallets are going to be implementing this in the near future. So I think that's the way forward. And, you know, back to our secure enclave versus general purpose computer, how, do, how would this standard benefit that, that decision choice? Well, so by having a standard for how to format these transactions... Um, you can do two things. One is increase the number of features that uh, the ecosystem can can collaborate on and be compatible with. But also you can narrow down the security attack surface just a little bit by being sure that this is what this particular format is. Here's how you validate it. Um, that's a huge step and it, it leaves work uh, resources available to be done to, to secure the rest of the, the solution. So I think that's important. Yeah, so thank you, Andrew Chow, for helping get that all shepherded through and everyone else who worked on it. Well, I think that pretty much concludes our our interview. What, you know, other than what are you most excited about with Bitcoin? Is it dead yet? (laughs) No, Bitcoin isn't dead yet, no. Um, You know, I I continue to think that Bitcoin is just a very strong um, challenge to the existing financial system. you know, I, I continue to even interacting with my own banks that I do business with, you know, just personally, it's it's flabbergasting that these these companies are able to compete at all in a market and survive. And just in the near future, you know what, they will not be able to compete anymore. Yeah, this they, is just ridiculous. Just interacting with the banks and even the credit card companies is just so much brain damage. It's just, ugh. <laughs> I mean, oh, let's send a one-time code thing to your text message. 
I mean, really? Like, how secure do they think the security theater is? So, actually, that's one idea I was thinking about recently is uh, SIM porting insurance. <laughs> SIM porting insurance. Well, we need to have the, uh, the the phone companies actually be able to be liable for their own negligence or maliciousness. Uh, someone won a lawsuit recently. Um, lost a lot of Bitcoin because of SIM porting. He won a lawsuit against one of the big telecoms. So, hmm. Do you remember who? Because I think Michael Turpin lost his, uh, lost his case. Uh, or I would I would double check that. Oh, I should go take take a look at that. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I don't follow enough of the drama. I, I suppose. <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah. So it's been a great interview. Thanks so much yeah. for taking the time to uh, to educate everybody about cold storage and some of your thoughts that have happened as you've been pondering about it. Sure. No, it's fun. Great having me on. Thanks. Well, we've had Brian Bishop, uh, Bitcoin Core contributor, former Ledger X. Uh, and been spending the last three months just pondering about cold storage and the ways to really implement it. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.